can't help myself. I, I play too much. Uh, check this out. So this week, instead of dropping one episode, we're going to give you and compile the best of the moments that you may have missed from the first 10 episodes, ranging from Vernon Davis to Chuck Pagano. So in the meantime, go follow us on Instagram at Athletes Unplugged and go subscribe to Athletes Unplugged. And on Twitter, you can give us a follow at Athletes Unplugged. That's it. So go check us out. Um, new format this week, and it should be fun. Kudos to you, man. You've had a great, great, great career. So you get drafted. You're in San Fran. And uh, obviously you had some moments in San Fran, some legendary moments that everyone talks about. Uh, the first one I want to talk about is the catch, the catch three. Some dubbed it the catch three. Clearly the catch three, if, you are, if you're fans of the 49ers, you understand Joe Montana, Dwight Clark was number one. Uh, T.O., Terrell Owens, his catch was number two. And let's talk about that catch. Uh, against the New Orleans Saints. It was 2011, 2012 playoffs, third and three, 12 seconds to go in the game. Can you, do you remember that play? Because I remember where I was, and I was just as happy as you were when you caught that ball. Do you remember um, what was going in, what, what was happening in the huddle? Did you know, were you the first read? What was going through your mind uh, before that play happened, and what, what actually did you know you were, you were primed to make a big play during that time? You know what, that that whole I think that whole during that time I knew I knew how much I started to think about all the things that we went through as a team and and from the start. For me getting drafted to San Francisco, I started even thinking about college days. Me and and to me that was the work, that was the preparation that I had put in to get to the mm -hmm. to that moment, right? And I knew mm -hmm. how bad my teammates wanted. So I knew it was gonna it was gonna fall on my back. We we had put that play in and practice. And I had a feeling it was going to be called. And when it was called, I just kept saying to myself, I said, you only get one shot. You only get one shot. It was that Eminem. It was like that Eminem yeah. song. It's ringing in my mind. It was just going off in my mind over and over and over. And as a kid, it's, it's, you always want to make that, that, that game-winning shot. It's nothing like that game-winning shot when everybody, you, you make the shot and everybody's jumping on your back, lifting you up. And that's what happened. You know, it, it, it was a great moment for the San Francisco 49ers, for that team, uh, for myself. And that moment is something I'll always cherish. I'll never forget that moment because it'll, I'll, I'll relive that experience over and over because it, it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I mean, it's not every day you wake up and you're making that game-winning shot. And to me, that was that game-winning shot. No, no, no doubt. We like you, like you mentioned, as kids playing sports, we dream about making that big play at that big moment, and you're the guy that everyone's screaming for, and you become overwhelmed with tears. I remember watching it. I was in L.A. at the time. I watched every second of that game, and when you caught that pass, when you scored, like, I could – I think I dropped a tear. I was so proud because I, I seen you put in the work. I seen how much of an influence you were to Monte, you know, to your community, to D.C. Mm -hmm. I felt that. I felt like I had caught the pass. So, uh, again – you had a, 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 a lot of moments with, um, with the 49ers. So let me ask you this. <laughs> I know we, I think I've asked you this before. Um, you know, I consider you a smart player. You know, are, do you have, you know, some players that you, you when you met, you was like, man, this guy is sharp as, as hell, man, on the, on the field. Because we get a bad rap. We get a bad mm -hmm. rap of being dumb jocks, and you don't play as long as you did if you're not a smart guy. 
are there any other guys that when you met him and played when you were like, man, this guy's sharp. He he has it. Um, D Butt. Mm-hmm. Um, no doubt. D Butt was always sharp to me. Um, like and I and I think and I think uh, we make each other better though too because. Oh, I like, got a question. You just yeah, yeah, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. We think differently, but when we come together, like it, mm. it kind of makes sense because we always piggybacking off each other. It's yes. like yes, yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that, and I'm like, yeah, because whoop de whoop de whoop, such and such. Yeah, and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, Deepa, he probably was one of the smartest players I've been around. Um, mm-hmm. Anybody? So, so let me let me ask you this: so playing safety in the league. And I, I, I listened to your Be A Pro podcast before you became assistant coach. You were interviewing DRC. And I remember y'all talking about a pick that he had and the nonverbal communication between the two of you pre-snap. Yeah. Because I played linebacker and I dealt with that with D-linemen, I've never asked you this, and I've always wondered, what is that communication like when you know you have – you said you had Champ Bailey on one side, you had uh, Chris Harris in the slot, you had DRC over here, and then uh, you know you in the you in the post. Like, what is that like? Like, how? how what is the nonverbal communication like? I, I don't know. If let's say he was playing cover three, and he's going to jump something, can you walk me through a scenario where that's happened and it worked out? So it worked out a lot. It worked out with all three of them actually: Champ Bailey, Chris Harris, and uh, DRC, because. One thing about it, like, and, and that's, and I want to bring it back to this real quick. OTAs. That's why OTAs is important. All of those guys was right. at OTAs with, me, and we was right. there together. And you that so chemistry. you have time to make mistakes and iron things stuff. out. Yeah, and when right. the game is on, it's easy because Champ Bailey he used to be like this. Mm-hmm. He, he, mm-hmm. Now this head, like yo. Like that, okay. he'd do a solo, okay. and DRC would do the same thing. But DRC like this, he animated. He like, yo, yo, okay, <laughs> yeah. you know, right, right. That's and, what's and, up, and man. Most, the most subtle is, is Chris. Chris be like, <laughs> yo. But but what kind of what kind of stresses does that put on a a, a strong safety slash free safety? You know, all, you guys are interchangeable. No I always wonder. I always wonder what that was like because I've had conversations with like a guy like Zach Kerr when we was in Indy because he was so nimble and good with his hands. Sometimes I would tell him, "Hey, bro, uh, go make a play. I'll play off of you." And it's not a many guys that I could say that to, but Zach Kerr was one of those guys. Uh, Sean Rogers was one of those guys in Cleveland. Yeah. Um, a few other guys that that my mind can't think of right now, but I always wonder what that non communication was like and what was it what did that look like in the meeting room let's say it didn't work out like what like what is that like are you guys on the same page like i'm not going because you know how it is in the meeting room if some, oh, yeah, somebody busted the coverage yeah okay if we won't throw nobody in the bus or like if it don't happen the way we want we'd be like hey coach that's my fault i take responsibility but you had a better recruiter but could you do that with a younger a younger mom no um, at corner and I think with joe hayden i would i did with yeah, Joe yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Because he was just super athletic. You know what I'm saying? And right, right. How can you not trust him? Go ahead, do what you do. Go. You know, he's just Man, and, and, and I remember DRC saying when you were interviewing him on your podcast, Be a Pro, he said, you know what? You gave me the freedom to play within the system. And yeah. I think that's what gives, makes you, what's going to make you a great coach. Because once you 
get the transition part down on how to communicate, how to, you know, articulate and verbalize certain techniques. I think that's what's going to what makes former players great coaches and potentially front office uh, in management. So with that being said, do you see yourself in the front office one day of an NFL franchise? I, I do. I, I see myself. I see sometimes some days I see myself as a head coach. Sometimes I see it as a GM. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, cause I, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to never be content. You know, I'm always right. going to be trying to grow, you know, and I, I think I owe that to, you know, every, every person that look up to me, you know, every, you know, right. black and brown person that's trying to get in a, you know, higher position. Yeah. Um, yeah. Young kids that's looking up to me, period. Like, or just players like, yo, just keep going. Just keep going. You know, right? I just, right. I, I got, I got to keep growing. You know, that's right. my like. They mess with all the freshmen, and then lights out. Sean was over here. They ain't fool with you, cause for the very first, uh, what was that in training camp when uh, we all had to introduce ourselves? You know, like anything else, you say your name, your position, where you're from. But uh, you know, I talked about it on your podcast. You know, like you decided to tell everybody. You was gonna be leaving school in three years, and <laughs> you was gonna be a top draft pick, and it came true. So let me ask you: Was that? Did you know most of the guys on the team, or was that something you had already planned? It's like, listen, I'm telling these folks I'm gonna be out of here because it, it takes an extreme amount of confidence to walk into a new situation, uh, new environment. Listen, you were you were all everything in in college, and to walk into Maryland, which was down the street from me, that was big shoes to fill. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you know what, what it was for me. Obviously, I was a cock, you know, cocky, you know, mother, whatever back then. You, you, but, you was confident, you know. Yeah, I was, I was confident. <laughs> but you know, you know what breeded my confidence was my work, and then also too, I had a you know chip on my shoulder from you know where I came from, and I was down to school, uh, right. you know, down down the street from the school. So I, I, you know, I just I had a little chip on my shoulder anyway. The other thing was is that you know I got the kind of the privilege to come in and meet like LeVar Arrington and Ray Lewis. So I was, right, I was around right. those guys right, already. Right. right. So when they, I mean, I'm talking about if they went somewhere, I was going with them, right? If right. they did something, I was around them. So, you know, being and seeing that at an early age, you know, I was like, you know what? I, I'm here. I, I feel like I can do this. Right. And so right, that, right. for that for me was kind of the breeding of confidence. And, <laughs> you know, I, I, <laughs> Some people, so the thing is, some people think a lot of stuff, and then I was just willing to say <laughs> right, it because it, right, that, right. that was really the only difference. A lot of people thought a uh, real super highly, absolutely. absolutely, a lot of people did. You, you thought you was the baddest, or this person thought they were the best, or this person thought they was the fastest, but nobody will come out and say it. I think right. that, um, by me kind of manifesting that in my own mind, I think that I was, I was saying it to hold myself accountable. Right, right, right. I, I, I think that because if, if you put yourself in that platform, you let it be known. You can never let yourself slip, right? You can never right, dog right. sprints. You can never, you know, not go. Yeah, hard. you worked hard. You worked hard. I tell you that you were one of the hard. You and Vernon, I tell you. Listen, I was trying to just keep up, but between you and Vernon, I've never been around two guys who competed on the field, off the field, in the weight room, in the class. Not most of the classroom. We're gonna leave that out, but everything yeah, else. <laughs> Everywhere else, you guys competed y'all tail off, man. So what what type of – you mentioned LeVar Arrington and Ray Lewis. You know, to have an influence like that growing up as a child and them basically being in your backyard. LeVar was it with the Washington football team at the time. 
And clearly, you know, Ray Lewis was in Baltimore. What type of influence was that? Because I remember being this young, quiet kid from obedient little, you know, kid from Florida. And when I, you know, I get around Sean Mayer, I'm like, what the heck? This is a grown ass man. You know, so your, your, your mentor was on a different level, man. Can you, can you talk about just, just the effects that guys like that would have on a young person's career? Because you were extremely successful. You know what, Quell, what it did was it, um, it it opened your eyes up to a lot of stuff because I don't know, you know, about you, but where I'm from, ain't no pro athletes was around us. Like we, right. I didn't have I didn't have an outreach. Nobody, no, not no pro athlete came back and talked to our kids. Cam, nobody, no pro athlete came back to my neighborhoods or anything like that, because right. when that when that doesn't. And this is this is why I go back so much to you know, Maryland, where I'm doing my coat drive, where I'm doing this and I yes. stay around people because. I might just by being around them or them seeing me around or doing certain thing or just being in the in the presence of being able to see somebody operate might change right. the course of their life because that's what happened in a sense with with Lavar and Ray right? right I seen what it was to be a pro athlete I seen right. how they worked I seen right. what they eat you know with what they ate where they ate at I seen the places they went. Right, um, right. you know, the reason why I bought my my first G Wagon is because of LeVar Arrington. You know, LeVar, yeah, yeah. my sophomore year in high school, rolled up on our field, like j- literally drove up on my our football field right <laughs> before the game. I'm warming wow. up, I'm hyping up the team. I look over and LeVar yeah. Arrington got his G Wagon in the corner. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, man, you know what? One day I, I want a G Wagon. I, I wanted to go, right. I wanted to go get the G Wagon, but you don't think any of that stuff is possible until you are around it. So that's you can why touch now it and for feel me, it. Right. Until right. you touch it, do you know it's you see it on we growing up, you know, we watched BT and Rap City and the in the basement and right. all this other stuff. You don't know that any of these things are possible until you see it. And and I right. seen it at an early age and and that between the chip on my shoulder, me being raised in, in the environment I was raised in, and now getting a chance to see Ray Lewis, see LeVar Arrington. Now right. you're like packaging all this stuff together. And that's why I was, you know, kind of had that mindset at early age. Right. Yeah. So you, you speak about the influence that they had on you. But I can tell you this, the guys that when you left school early 2005, when you were drafted 12th overall that year, when you won defensive rookie of the year, all of us, that gave us confidence that we can not only still do what we were doing in college, but we could actually be successful and, Defensive Rookie of the Year, we watched you like a hawk, and you gave us motivation. Like the time you came back before, I believe it was before the draft, you came, you showed up, rolled up in the SL 500. That to me was everything. I had never been in a, a luxury car that expensive before in my life. And to the point you made about actually being able to, to see and experience and see what Ray Lewis and LeVar, how they operated, how they were pros, you did that for us. Like, you were my motivator. I'm like, right. man, if Sean can do it, I know I can do it. I know I can that's do it. That's crazy. And that's the attitude you should have. Yeah. Man. But, you, but you know, to, to your point, you know, if you're never around it, you don't think it's possible, right? right. I mean, right. it's just it's just what it is. And, and and fortunately, and I was in a situation to be blessed to see that early on, right? And, and like in high school. So I walked in with this, you know, I had this pro mentality as a college player. Just like right. I had a pro right. because right. of him. He wasn't pushy. He wasn't, he wasn't trying to like – Say I'm that he he wanted to be my friend first. So once we developed that communication, I walked into his office one day, and this story had is 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 I mean it just he finally opened my eyes. It was like why not? You know you got this that and the other going on. 
Like it probably would be beneficial for you to get outside of your step outside of yourself, the norm. And first I thought he was crazy as hell, but I was like, you know what? I'm gonna do it. And I remember calling him like, Yurt, I'm going, I'm doing it. And I remember getting like 15, 20 shots. And after the, the the fifth one, I'm like, man, I don't know if this is, I don't know. If this is. <laughs> but, but I did it. But I did it. And it was the most impactful moment of my life. I met some great friends who I'm still in touch with today. Jaime Flores, who's a doctor down in Miami, former Turk, um, you know, Marco Avila. I met some great, phenomenal people that just wanted to do good. And when you're around those people in that environment, you sacrifice everything. To go, this isn't a tourist attraction. You know, you go there to help. Far and from it. Far from it. And the legacy that you leave behind, the fact that the school is still in touch, has been remarkable. But can you talk about how that relationship, once you were able to um, uh, build the structure, get the school running, how did that uh, marriage or a relationship with University of Maryland and the engineering student body kind of come in play? Well, it's uh, one of those things where, you built it, but you originally don't know the impact you will have or how you will continue to move forward. But I realized I had to tap into the pre-existing relationships that I already have. And one of the things I remember I wrote in, um, I have, I keep a journal and I write in it sometimes random things, not understanding exactly how things are going to connect. But years later, I like to look back and see. So, Around those time, around that time, I wrote connection between Prince George's County. I had my foundation in the middle. Connection mm-hmm. between Prince George's County, University of Maryland. But I didn't know mm-hmm. how those two things will connect. And I have to give credit to Daryl Pines, who is now the president of the University of Maryland. Mm-hmm. He approached me when he while he was the dean of the engineering department and said, Hey, let's go to lunch. At first, I was very reluctant to do it. Mm-hmm. And I ended up just going just to be respectful. And we had a great conversation and he had a great heart. And he told me, he said, listen, I know what you're trying to do and mm-hmm. I want to partner with you. And this is the vision I have. But I want to hear your vision first and see if we can work together. And I left the meeting so encouraged by what uh, President Pines said during that time that I knew that the partnership was going to work because he told me I'm committed. I'm committed to what you're doing. I like what you're doing. It's not about you. I know that Mm -hmm. it's about the mission. It's about building communities and and making things better. And from that, we just meet at least every six months and we kind of sketched out how we go about doing it. And we've been Mm -hmm. in partnership for the last eight, nine years, man. It's been phenomenal. Not only have the students from the university, of Maryland School of Engineering and benefited, but public health has also benefited. And right. one of my greatest joy is when I watch the University of Maryland on television yeah. and they talk about the impact of University of Maryland is making as a university. Right. It's powerful. And they show like what the university is doing, whether they're in the in the computer lab or in the field, there's always right. a five second image of what's going on in Sierra Leone. Most people probably don't even realize what it is. That's amazing. That's amazing. It is a, is a snapshot of our school and the mm-hmm. students at the University of Maryland are working with our kids, working with mm-hmm. the school, installing solar panels, doing a water filtration system. So the kids, the student students are making the trip to Sierra Leone every summer. Yeah. That is, 
every Sunday. That is amazing. That just gave me chills. Yeah. Because I tell my wife all the time, I tell her about this trip. This The first trip I ever made to Sierra Leone, I think, was 2010. And it still resonates with me to this day. I can still put myself back in that environment, back in those little kids and, and, and playing with them and, and teaching them how to use a pencil sharpener and teaching them, you know, they didn't know how to use a pencil sharp. I mean, that that's the type of, you know, impact that you've had. Imagine that kid that didn't know how to use a, a pencil sharpener or a number two pencil, what she's taught the next generation coming before her. That That is a legacy that you can't, that's, that's more impactful than giving money. That's time. Right. That's legacy. That is something that, uh, you know, I don't have the word for it. But I tell my wife all the time, it's like when my son gets old enough, because he lives a he, he lives a charmed life, I, you know, nothing wrong with that. But at some point when he's able to understand why mommy and daddy work so hard and you're able to take trips and eat and go wherever and wear nice clothes, you need to put your he's going back. He's going to Sierra Leone. Yeah. He's going to that school. He needs to see kids just like himself that, you know, cause he's going to have the same, it, it affects you. It, yeah. it really, it, it really affects you because you don't, you don't fathom. If you read a book about it, if you see pictures about it, it's completely different than planting yourself in that environment. And to see someone like yourself, not only make something of themselves to just the amount of the, the impact, that's what all of us want to leave behind as a legacy. How we, how will we be remembered? And uh, I think it, it speaks volumes to, you know, you have, you know, very affluent people that attend University of Maryland, and the fact that the engineering group and the president decided this is important for our kids to not only give back to find creative ways to improve uh, lives and education and healthcare of these young people at this school, but to actually make a trip and go there. Uh, kudos to you, man. That's that's impactful. Thank you, man. And I also say kudos to President Pines, man, because years ago when we had that conversation, like I mentioned, it was kind of like in one yard the other and not realizing how impactful and where it was going to lead. And years later, when I look back, it's just, it brings, it brings a smile on my face that that kid from Sierra Leone that came here at nine years old is able to go back and bring people to bring resources into the community. Yes. Sierra Leone. Um, to me, that's what it was all about. And it made me realize that I came in full circle in terms of me going to university of Maryland. It made me feel like it was bigger than just what I did on the football field. Yeah. yeah. My last half of eighth grade and first oh, half okay. of ninth grade. And gotcha. it's my younger brother who was in sixth grade at the time. So we got both pulled out of middle school because our mom gotcha. getting in trouble. My mom right, and my right. dad were educators in the Broward County school system. So they like, Hey, you're mm -hmm. not about to me. me. Yeah. We're not about to embarrass me. That's not right. what we're doing. Pulled us out mm -hmm. of school and I was begging, <laughs> begging to get back in school. I mean, I wanted some yeah. homework. I wanted some, yeah. I, I, like, because this was before cell phones, social media. Right, all right. Phone. So all the interaction was face to face. You yeah, gotta be it in, was, yeah. man, that, it was, that was, that was tough. So it was just me and my brother for about a good year, actually, where we just was completely out of school. But I went back yeah. to Cold Spring Charter and it was a, like such a new program. You know, it's tough to build a football program. Um, right. So even th so, I, I started playing basketball for my freshman year, and mm -hmm. then my, finally my junior year, I'm like, all right, you know, I'm gonna go out for the football team. Um, mm -hmm. And um, 
I had a coach, uh, Otis Mounds, who 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 coached me, Mike Higgins and Otis Mounds. But Otis Mounds put me to the side one time. He was like, "Hey man, you you know you five nine, you five ten. Yeah, like I know you love the hoop. I know you love basketball, but <laughs> it ain't too many five nine, five tens in the NBA. Man. Well, that's the same thing happened to me, boy. Yeah. Oh my God, when when you had that that conversation with a coach, like, listen, man, because my first love was basketball. Mm-hmm. You couldn't tell me that I wasn't going to the league. I wanted to go to the league and be in the NBA, bro. Because yeah, I, I want to be AI. Oh, no, no doubt. No doubt. I had, I mean, I got a cousin that played overseas for, you know, 10 plus years, 6'9". Mm-hmm. His mother's 6'2". I got aunts over six foot. You see me, bro. I've been the same size since I was like <laughs> in eighth grade. I just stopped growing. I thought for sure I was going to hit at <laughs> least six if I hit that growth spurt. Yeah, yeah. And I love football or lo- love basketball, but I had that uh, I had that conversation as well with a high school coach. It's like, listen, you got to draw a line of saying, young man. It's like, what you want to do? You know, yeah. you're really good at football, but this basketball, you're playing one through five and you're six foot. That ain't going to cut it. Yeah. <laughs> Not at this high school. So that's how it happened for me, man. So – that's so, how it happened for a lot of us. That's how it happened yeah, for a lot yeah. of us. And, 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 yeah, and a lot of those skills are transferable for, to your position. Definitely, uh, especially so, you, so you start playing football in, in, in high school. Mm-hmm. Clearly, you you made you you were able to have enough of an impact on the field to to earn you scholarships. Now, were you one of those guys that were highly touted? You know, back in the day, I remember mm-hmm. in Florida. I was in Florida as well. Like Tom Lemon was everything. It's like mm-hmm. whether you were one star, two star, three star, five star. Like, did yeah, you I, have? I, I I didn't even. I wasn't even really that cognizant, that really aware of like that. We I would pay attention to rivals a little bit. That was rivals was another, rivals yes. kind of taking off, and I, I had mm-hmm. I was like a one and a half, maybe a two star. But yeah. I didn't go to a bunch of camps, uh, mm-hmm. like football camps. I didn't go to a lot of those things that a lot of football players are doing during like my basketball right. season. You know right. what I mean? That was a thing to do back then. Yeah, that was that was my camps. thing. But like, yes, that's how people got ranked and, and all these different mm-hmm. things. But I wasn't doing any of that. So, and then once again, this was still before like you know social media and things like that. And it's easier to get lost in the sauce, you know, when you're down here in South Florida because right. you know, we, we we pumping out Division One athletes left and right. So right. Um, my right. coach Otis Mounds, he actually grew up with the running backs coach that was at UConn. And that was from football uh, as well. They kind of grew up together, and he kind of was like, hey, I, got, I got a guy here got who, it. You know, who the real deal. Nobody know about it because we had Coral wow. Springs. And I mean, when I tell you, like, we didn't have our own stadium. Um, wow. We barely had any – like, we barely had the resources to, to be able to compete. So if like, I could interrupt you for one second. Yeah. Like, I assume – listen, I grew up four hours north of Miami. So I yep. assume every high school – in Miami, Fort Lauderdale area is a powerhouse. And I live, uh, yeah. so in my mind, I'm thinking like you went to a powerhouse school and, you know, because you're from Florida, that Fort Lauderdale, Miami area, you just I was, the, I was the first Division One athlete from my school. Any school. Oh, wow, okay. The first okay. Division One athlete. So when, I, when I'm talking about, when I was in high school and I used to tell other people, like I go to the neighborhood gym or go somewhere else, but damn, where yeah. you play at? I'm like, oh, I play charter. <laughs> like charter. Like what? What is that? Because my school was actually converted into a high school from a a, a mall oh, that nobody even really went to. Yeah. So like the, the location of my high school, I I had never been anywhere kind of even near that vicinity. Like that was probably 
15 wow. to like 17 minutes away from where I actually lived. So um, it, it, was, it was crazy. And not only from the athletic standpoint, but even at the academic standpoint, like it was because uh, di- we didn't have the same um, rules or laws as public schools or private schools. So right. a lot of the teachers didn't really, you know, so it was it was it was it was very, very uh, different. And I had some you know, opportunity to go and play at, especially after my junior year. That's when right. all the other big schools was kind of like, you know how it is behind the scenes. Right, right, a lot of recruiting right, right. Going on. So I literally had high school coaches in my living room. Hey, we need to come here. We need to do yeah, uh, yeah. it. Yeah, it, it, it was crazy. But um, but uh, it, I, cool. I'm, I'm glad I went through it that way. And then it kind of going to UConn and UConn kind of been a basketball school and not been a football school. I kind of dealt with a, a lot of the same things on the college level that I dealt with in high school. Right. So it definitely, right. you know, me and him just didn't see eye to eye, man. And at that time, I was like, man, fuck it. I was I was coming off my knee injury, and I'm like, man, to hell with this dog. Like I'm a, uh, I'm a just I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a, I'm a finish the season because I'm not gonna quit on my teammates because they expected right. me to be here even in the capacity of just you know returning kicks. So I just go back right. to returning kicks or whatever the hell and whatever happened happened. Right. And so, right. And so um. You know, fast forward, and that summer, we get out, and I go down to uh, my godmom's, like, so I hear that you're taking acting classes. I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I, I think I want to kind of get into this entertainment thing. So she's like, well, I want to take you down. I'm going to take you and your godbrother down to uh, to Miami, and I'm going to introduce you to a couple people. I want you all to That's big for a family member to, you know, because you had spent, you know, your years in college, again, you Football. know. Football, you know, and you you thinking about other things past football. So yeah, I don't. Please continue. So yeah, <laughs> nah, So she so she takes us down to to Miami, and um, she gets us the passes, and we you know we doing that whole thing. And so then at that that specific year, Will Packer was at the at the festival, and um, mm-hmm. so we went to this event, and I saw Will Packer, and he was talking about his 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 trajectory on how he started at FAMU and. Um, him and him and his partner, um, I think Robert something, I forget his last name, but mm-hmm. him and his partner and how they started, and then the, the first movie that they did, which was Twa, and then how it evolved from there, and then they become, you know, they get this this big opportunity to right. do uh, think like a man with Steve Harvey, and then that movie makes gross a hundred million dollars and blah blah, right. blah 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 blah. So at that right. point, I start being a student of the film mm-hmm. game. I'm like. If I'm gonna get into this, I gotta be as 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 intentional as I was with football, right? I, right. So, so when I lined up against somebody it, from week to week, I knew your tendencies, I knew what you did, no what doubt. you didn't do, how you open your hips. If he opened his hips, if he didn't on kick returns, I knew uh if I go, if I'm running left and I return it and I return and I really intended it and turn it on the right, I gotta push left and then go right. So like I okay, knew, I knew okay, okay, I was okay, 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 I hear you. I hear you know you. what I'm saying? Like I knew I was very right, intentional. Right. I, I You're a student of the game. I knew I, I'm a student, so I said if I'm gonna be a, if I'm gonna be in this, I'm gonna be a student of this. So I learned. I made it my business to learn every every black director, every black producer, right. every black right. film house. And then I was right. like, okay, now you know the black stuff. Now you need to learn the white stuff. So I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. I need to know who's connected to who, who is right. Warner Media, who is this, who is that. And I needed to know exact who the executives. Like I needed to learn every. So I made it intentional. So I'm like, I'm, I was very intentional in learning early in the game, like who was the right, right. to talk to. Right, right. I mean, being yeah, able man. to, you know, flex that muscle of playing quarterback to now you're considered one of the greatest returners to play in the National Football League. Man, what does that uh, mean to Josh wow. Cribs, man? You know what? It's a real DQ. It's a real because just to be mentioned with the greats is good enough. 
before even right. having an opportunity. Like, right. like man, I get you telling me I get to – I play recess every day, football for recess. So when I talk <laughs> to kids, I tell them, look, I got paid millions of dollars to go to recess because that's what right. playing for the right. Browns was like. It was like recess. Right. Like we got right. to do the we got to do what we love to do for a job. And yeah, pay and they no paid doubt. us well. So no to doubt. be the best of the best in a sport after I was overlooked, mm. after I wasn't drafted, after I was passed on. And and right. to, even even for a college, you know, mm. it, it just it, it brings everything to full circle. You know, my, my career brings everything into fruition. Uh, I also become a story for others, you know, like no that, that no weren't drafted, mm-hmm. that think that it's over once they had to be a free agent, that they can't fight for something more, that they right. can't be great. Right. Like right. all the draft picks are not the only ones that end up being great. Right. You know, right. and, 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 and speaking testament. of, let's go back to some of your great moments you had that were historical. And I had, to, I had a chance. There's two instances. There's two scenarios. There was one against the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I know where you're going with this because I know you talked about it at nauseum. But it's one of the greatest returns I've ever witnessed. Mm. It was in November. I think, believe it was 2007 against the Pittsburgh Steelers. And it was – this is the year we won 10 games. And mm. not only was it a great return, but the situation of the game made it even greater. Because mm. we were down 21-24. It was a high-stakes game. We're down – yeah, we're down 21-24. And – the Pittsburgh Steelers and Mike Tomlin, they know it's like, listen, we have to face this guy twice a year. We're not kicking to him. They made it their business not to kick to you. And on this particular instance, what I'm talking about is they squibbed it. And I remember yep. it. I remember it like it was yesterday. I, I, I figured what you correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like you intended to catch it off the bounce, off the squib. Yes. Yes. It touches your hands, flips over your head. Now the ball is on the one-yard line. The timing is all screwed up from the R5, L5. All the blocking is all screwed up. Somehow, if you don't pick it up, there's two things going to happen. Either they tackle you on the one, it's an easy score for Pittsburgh, or you pick it up, it's a safety, they tackle Nothing good is, is going to come out of this. Somehow you were able to dodge four or five guys, tiptoe on the sideline, return it for 100 yards. One of the greatest returns I've ever witnessed. And tell me, what, what goes through – Someone like you, did you have time to think about it or was it just something that you were just reacted to? And you know what? It was a little bit of both. I tell mm-hmm. you this, I remember like it was yesterday too. So I did want to catch it. I knew they were going to squib it. I tried to be smarter than, you know, I thought I was. <laughs> Try to catch the ball at a certain point before they, you know, I tried to make the squib not work. And that's how I hit my hands. I tried to catch it. I, mi- I mistimed it. So as soon as it tipped off my hands, I, I ran back to the ball and I immediately was a, a calmness came over me. And I'm like, don't panic. I'm like, that's the only right. thing I couldn't do. We were well coached. Right. You gotta remember, we are a well coached mm-hmm. special teams unit. I'm like, don't panic. Um, one thing right. happens, the DQ, when when a ball doesn't get kicked the way it's supposed to get, not only is the kick the kick return team in a disarray. But the kickoff team becomes in a disarray, too. The one thing that happens that a lot of people don't understand when a ball is squid is that the kickoff team, they abandon their assignments. Right. Because the ball is muffed. Everybody wanted to go to the ball. 
True. Yeah. True. So I'm I'm True. running to the ball in the corner. Everybody just running to the ball, like free for all. Banding their right. assignment. It was a little slick out there. It was like mm-hmm. October or something like that, November mm-hmm. or something like that. It was Cold slick, as hell. Little rain. Yes. A little <laughs> sleep rain. You know them days. Yeah. And I remember just calmness coming over me, like, look, I I'm just don't want to make it worse. Like it's just football, it's a game. <laughs> right. Like I, I'm like, <laughs> right. worst thing that can happen, I get tackled. <laughs> I felt like the worst thing already happened. Me dropping sure. the ball and then rolling back there. I'm like, right. that's the worst right here. So right, I can only right. make it better. <laughs> so I picked it up, DQ, and then I blacked out and I don't remember nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> so so I gotta so E B is he, yo, so I have to go back to some of the questions because that's why we're here. Okay. So E B yeah. E B has another question. Uh, let's see. Can you see it? Can you see the question on here? Yes. So yes, EB I says, can. can you tell everyone how you, <laughs> you use the Jumbotron to help you during kickoff return? That's Absolutely. a hell of a question. <laughs> Man, and a, and a lot of people don't realize that. So I didn't know. Okay, so my first touchdown, my first uh, kick return touchdown against the Lions, <laughs> I caught the ball, right? Uh-huh. So as I'm breaking it, I see myself in the Jumbotron running. And I'm like, oh, that's me. So I'm running, and then I see R.W. McCorders. And the only reason I knew it was him, because he had dreads, too. He had locks. So he's chasing me in the Jumbotron. I'm looking up. I'm like, oh, man. He chasing. He about to get me. I'm like, he's close. Right, right. So I see him dive, and I, uh-huh. so I jump. Uh-huh. I jump the same time that I see him dive. And then the messed up part is <laughs> I didn't know that the jumbotron and what you see on the field is like a one yeah. second delay. Oh my lord! Oh, I, I didn't know that. Lord. So I'm running in the film. He dives, and after he dives, I I give a late jump because that's what that's what. Okay, I I'm gonna have to go back. I'm gonna have to go back there. I know it's on YouTube, so I'm gonna have to go yes. back to that. So you basically yes. jump when no one was near you. Exactly. Basically. Oh exactly. my lord! I gotta go back and watch he, that. I gotta he go already back and watch dove. That. He already dove, and then I jumped. And for no reason at all. And then I'm looking wow. up there for no reason. But I used to, I promise you, every time at our home stadium, because the <laughs> Jumbotrons was right there, you could see it down the right. field. I would use it That's to run crazy. and see how things was like. I'm telling you. That's I, I used crazy, to use that Jumbotron, bro. man. Hey, you got to use all a- your weapons. That that's a hell of a <laughs> hey, EB, I appreciate the question, bro, because I had no idea he used the Jumbotron when he was yeah, breaking, you know. So um you know, the NFL has, you know, I, I talk a lot, you know, my wife knows and my close net of uh, people here, we all get together, smoke a cigar, drink some McAllen, and we just saw the world's problems. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. But, you know, obviously the Olympics has passed us and there was a huge, um, there was a lot of talk about, you know, some uh, Simone Biles and other people in the past dealing with emotional health. and. Yeah. And for us, when we walked into the NFL, it was whatever goes on in this building stays in this building. My opinion about this whole this new appreciation for the athlete, not only their bodies, but the mental side of it. What's your thoughts around around that, uh, around that and the mental the mental side of of an athlete on to be honest with you? Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I can. Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, it's it's real. Um, I can allude to it because I never speak about my story. Uh, uh, you know, mm. being in the league, we all get in trouble. I got in trouble some 
somehow, you know, by doing something that I wasn't supposed to be doing. And that, took, yeah, that took a toll on my mind. You know, I thought, I thought about all of the negative things that I would want to do to myself because how people would view me and how people would right. talk about me. And, right. And it's not even something that's that huge of a problem in society, but that's how our culture is made. So you have to kind of walk the line. So mm -hmm. mentally, we're kind of we're kind of damaged because what we have to go through, your your normal human being don't go through. Right. You know, the, right. the scrutiny right. we go under, people in this world don't get to to experience. So, right. Yes, uh, if you mental health for any athlete at this point, because we we, right. we kind of forced it, or we can't say them, but within us, we want to be great, so we kind of force the issue to do as great as we can. Which right. is a battle in the mind, not really on the physical side. It's in the no mind. doubt, no so, doubt, no, no doubt about it. I realized that point probably, and I don't know if we've ever talked about this. And 2009 and 2010, I had two season-ending injuries mm -hmm. to both of my pecs, left pec, right pec, back to back. And this was 2010, as well as you know, this yeah. was the lockout year, and yes. I signed a four-year deal coming out of college, and so. I was up. I hadn't hadn't played in a year and a half. And mentally, the mental strain that it took on my body. Yeah. I, I it was I don't I wouldn't wish that on anyone. And for the people that look at us as puppets on the screen, tackling a different color jersey and all that, the shit is real. And I'll tell you what I had to do and what realized when I realized I need to start investing in the mental side of the game as yeah. well as the physical is. I was in IMG Academy in Bradenton, Florida, and yeah. there was a guy named Trevor. Uh, he works with Russell Wilson right now, but he was at IMG Academy at that moment. And he was always around the workouts, right? And yeah. he, he befriended a lot of us. He, was, he wasn't being too pushy, and I finally had a conversation with him, and he was like, hey, you know, won't you come to my office? You know, we, let's talk. Mm -hmm. In my mind, I started asking people, like, who is this guy? Like, is he, like, what? So he was a sports psychiatrist. But he didn't identify as that. And I never forget, I never forget the first time I walked in his office. Tom, but it was like everything that I knew I should be doing, but I didn't know how to verbalize it. And he made a a process of it. And we literally got on the chalk a dry eraser board and he asked me what I wanted. And I was like, What what are you talking about? What do I want? Mm -hmm. And what do you want? And we wrote out everything. We made this pyramid scheme of what I wanted. And at the top, at the time, the most important thing for me was and I kid you not, a year or two later, I still keep it. I still keep that laminate. Um, and anywhere I go, it was of the diagram that we created to get to uh, that five year X amount of dollars a year. It was damn near. Um, um, you know, spot on. So mm -hmm. at that moment, I realized we all train our bodies. At that moment, I realized like, man, the mental side is the edge. And so that, that in that moment, I've been on this quest to try to find, because a lot of guys, and I know I'm talking a lot, and a lot of guys like us, man, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to create this platform is, hell, I need to pick up the phone and call Tom. I need to pick up the phone and call the guys I used to play with, because we never know what any of us are going through. Because we're we we're, we're from that old school era where oh, we take care of everything. I, yeah, it's tough love, man. So uh, that's my experience with it, and I don't know necessarily where you fall in that line, but I know you've always been a extremely smart guy, inquisitive guy. Uh, yeah, I mean, 
everything you say I can second on because the reality as a player, we don't get to say what we want to do. We don't we don't have a say. We we get in there, they say, oh, the bus leaves at this time. We all are on the bus. Oh, when you get there, here are the meetings. We're all there. If you have issues, right. it shouldn't arise at those times, especially now when you're in that building like that. You know, mm -hmm. And it's like if we know injuries and then we know hurts. Like if you're hurting, you need <laughs> right, to keep right. that hurt to yourself. We know you can play right. on Sunday. So, right, like, right. you know, everything, it, it, again, if we look deep in it, we're all, I'm appreciative of the NFL. I'm appreciative of the game. No I, I love what it did for me. No but doubt. if you check the history, you will know that this is not a normal idea. This is. <laughs> right, right. We basically put our bodies in a blender week in and week out. For yeah, years at a time. As you mentioned, I know how taxing it is to play in the inside. And you played in an era where, Coaches didn't give a damn about a consecutive tour days or how long they could yeah. keep you out. They wanted to run you into the ground. They wanted to see who was mentally tough and physically able to stand the grind, the grind throughout practice and then also be asked to go out there and play on Sunday and be productive. And you oh, did yeah, that absolutely. throughout your entire career. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's uh, the, the way the game is played now, definitely not as uh, physically, demand, physically demanding, especially in training camp. I can remember when I went to the Rams in 98, Dick Vermeil was the head coach, and, and we used to have real two-a-day practices. When I talk about real two-a-day practices, it's uh, practices were three-and-a-half-hour long, uh, full pads every practice. So you go uh, two times in full. So we go two-two-one. So two-a-day, two-a-day, then a, uh, you know, one-a-day practice. But it, we always had full pads on. It was no, hey, you're going to oh, be uh, uh, full pads <laughs> in the morning, Shorts and show, uh, shorts and uh, jerseys in the afternoon. No. Right, right. And so, they were, so they were they were three and a half hour practice. I'm talking. About See, I don't know if I would have. I mean, you have to be in a different mental space to get through it because you don't oh, know yeah. anything differently. But like, was there any? Uh, so it's funny. I've been on those teams when I, you know, both of our careers kind of crossed over because you played so long. So when I was when I was drafted to the league in 2006. There was no more consecutive tour day, so it was two one two, and the second <laughs> yeah. practice was a glorified walkthrough, right? You know, and it was just like, oh, I can, I can, I can handle this, you know, because college was completely different. So my question to you is, was there anyone that you can remember in your '98 season that was probably like the states? You know how how it goes, the NFL locker room where, man, it's like after a week, it's like, hey, man, we got to take the pass off. You know, was that? Did you have someone like a spokesman on your team that could go to Dick Rebill and be like, hey, man? The guys are tired, man. We got to take the pass off. What can you do for it? Hey, not only do we have an elder statement, one elder statesman in the locker room, we had about 20 because we, <laughs> right, right. these guys, they we almost had a revolt because the practices were so hard. We're getting ready to play, um, I think, a regular season, started a regular season game, and guys are literally – we had a meeting, a, a players-only meeting, guys talking about mm -hmm. how hard the practices were. <laughs> how they didn't have any mm -hmm. legs come game day. And, uh, you know, they're trying to talk about going out. A few of them went to Coach Vermeil and was like, hey, Coach, you got you to gotta scale it back. You know, <laughs> right. now I don't have any gas in the second half of the games. Coach Vermeil was like, whatever. <laughs> we go <laughs> like this. You know, he just wow. did, um, he had that old school mentality where, in his mindset, in his mind, the Rams, they weren't a good football team when he took over the franchise in 97. 
They, they have been losing for a long period of time. And he felt like he needed to weed out the certain certain type of people, certain yep. type of players. Um, now, I will say this. So, 98 practices were brutal. 97, they were brutal when I – I heard they were worse than 97 before I got there. Ooh, 98 scaled them back a little bit. 99, we won the, win the Super Bowl. Right. And I can tell you this. We won that 99 Super Bowl because of how we were mentally and physically tough uh, based on what we did in 98 training camp, 97 training camp, things like okay. that. So come that okay. Super Bowl game against the uh, Tennessee Titans, where we got to come up with a defensive stand. We're gas defensively, but we were so mentally tough. Right. We knew we, we, knew we had what it took to uh, make one more play to win that game. And you mentioned the 98 season and that was, I'm sorry, the 99 season where you guys go 13 and three and you guys have, you guys were deemed the greatest show on turf with um, Marshall Falk and Terry, uh, Tory Holt and Isaac Bruce, Orlando Pace. And uh, who am I missing? Who am I missing? Uh, you know, all these veteran guys mm-hmm. and you guys, how, so you're a big component, as, as it sounds like, you're a big component of, you know what, you got to go through your dog days in training camp. You got to really, really see who's in it and who's not mentally and physically. And nowadays, I can tell you this, London, nowadays, it's a joke. It's a joke. Yeah. It, you oh, yeah. go back, when I was in, when I was, I spent eight years in Cleveland, three years in Indy, and one of the craziest stories I've ever been a part of where, you know, you have your rookie hazing, right? And I was on a veteran squad with Reggie Wayne and Adam and Terry and Robert Matthews, all these guys. And, you know, it was fun. It was camaraderie. You know how it is. Mm-hmm. So we had a, we had some defensive guys. We wanted to shave the head. Do you know, we had two guys actually leave the, <laughs> like leave training camp because they didn't want to get their hair cut. Oh yeah. And this were guys that we thought that could, you know, that could possibly help us. And it was just, man, I was like, man, you know what? This is a different league, man. Like I, I'm not used to that. Like, right. you got all this in front of you, but your hair? Like, come yeah. on, man. Like, we weren't trying to be disrespectful on on, on that yeah. level. It was just and, like – And the thing is, is, um, you know, that, that, that camaraderie that's built during training camp, when you go through something together, when you're – when you really have to lean on each other to make it through a practice to, you know, man, to mm-hmm. get up for a practice um, – because you know th- those days, man, you uh, you can remember you know, your legs are sore, your body is hurt, right. your body's tired. Um, it's uh, it's different now, you know. Now uh, <laughs> right. the coach is always telling me, you know, the coaches that are coaching now in the NFL or whatever, they're like you can't. Mm-hmm. Man, the players are different now. You can't can't talk can't, to them. Like you yeah, you can't to talk to them the way you th- um, you want to talk to them. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't I mean. You would you would. Man, you, I, you, I, you, I, I coach, I'm gonna <laughs> talk to them the way they gonna need to be talked to. So. Uh, you know you're gonna you're gonna either you know man up and do what you need to do or you're not. I, I can't I can't sugarcoat it with you. <laughs> exactly, and it's a grown man sport, and you know, critic fair criticism it, it is what it is, and you separate the weak minded from the strong minded. Let's go back to our days in Indy, man. Uh, 2012, you know, you take over a team that's two and fourteen. Um, they're no longer bringing back Peyton Manning. And now you have the whole world on your shoulders. And it's a huge, it's, you know, you, you get the head coaching gig, you know, Andrew Luck, in my opinion, at that time, it's a no brainer. He's going to be the number one overall draft pick, but you run into, you know, what was the biggest fight of your life? You know, you got diagnosed with an acute uh, form of leukemia 
Um, can you touch on it, if you will, in your own words, what what that moment was like for you and Tina and your family? Because I can imagine, you know, that was not it was unexpected. And, you know, it was something that no one plans for. You know, what was that? What was that like? The just initial, you know, I, I heard you do an interview talking about it briefly about, you know, it was doing a bye week. No one was there. And, you know, you had to deal with it the best way you can. You know, what what was that moment like for you? Yeah, it's or that journey, I should say. It's like, like you know, getting hit hit across the head with a two by four because yeah. we all know people um, in our right. lives dealt you know with cancer and heard yeah. those heard those words. You know, you always think you're right. going to be the last person to ever hear that or never hear that, right? So, right. yeah, right. it was definitely one of those moments where you just get your dream job and you right. say, you know, why me? You know, right. you put me in this right. situation. And, and now all of a sudden you're going to throw, you know, a big hurdle at me, a huge right. obstacle. And, right. you know, I go back to, you know, the third game of the season, we're playing Jacksonville and we're one and one and mm-hmm. we take the lead. Andrew takes us down the field and we take the lead with 56 seconds left on the clock and we kick off to him a touchback and they throw right. an eight yard skinny post to Cecil Short playing Gabbert and we sure. lose the game. And we have the bye the next week, and we walk in that locker room, and I said a few words, and then Robert talked uh, like he always did. And he right. came in and said, look, we'll man up, we'll come in tomorrow, we'll watch this tape, we'll make the corrections, and we'll move on. And there's no pity parties right. in life, and there's no pity parties in football. And I remember sitting there when I went down to Simon Cancer Center that Wednesday afternoon with my wife and Dr. Cripe looking me in the eye and saying, hey, look, I'm 99% sure that you have leukemia. You know, promyelothetic yeah. was what it was, and it's a form of leukemia. It's highly yeah. curable. We're going to do a bone marrow biopsy, and and blah blah blah. And and next thing I knew, I was in the OR, and they were putting a pick line in my arm, and then I was admitted right. into a room. And, and that was right away. I never got to leave. I I thought, oh you know, wow, I'm like driving down. I didn't even tell Tina, and and mm. you know, Hammer comes down along with the yeah. team, Doug Robertson, and they said, no, you need a ride. I said, I don't need a ride. This is nothing. This ain't going to be anything. I'm going to go right. get checked out. I'll, I'll be back in the facility, you know? Right. And uh, they said, no, you need a ride. So they knew the severity of it. I didn't know. Ah, uh, I see. Once I, got, once I got down there and met with the oncologist, Dr. Cripe, he's like, you know, this is what it is. And you just sit back for a moment. And I said, like, why me? You know? Right. Coming, Tina and I are very emotional. And then. I remember what Robert said, you know, there's no pity parties, you know, in football and there's no pity parties in life. And I said the same thing. I said, okay, God damn it. Right. You know, right. Me what my chances are. Give me the game plan. Tell me exactly what right. happened. We're going to kick this thing's ass. I'm going to be around for a long, long time for my wife, you know, right. my kids, and I'm going to get back to this football team. And so it was yes. a mindset. And we learned mm-hmm. from playing football. Right. You know, right. I was, yeah, I was gonna say you were you were you were prime for because there, there was one thing that I I heard you mention and say over and over and over again during that time it was uh, live in vision, not in circumstance. And no, absolutely. I, and so my vision was, you know, that I was gonna beat cancer. You know, walk right. two daughters, you know, down the aisle. Yes, and yes. Away, and we were yes. gonna win Lombardi Trophy. And so, you know, yeah. I spend so much time now. You know, because I'm blessed to be around and gone through that where 
so many people reached out to me, DQ, that I didn't know yeah. during that time and encouraged me. And now, right. you know, Tina and I have an opportunity, uh, you know, to do the same for others. And that's right. my one thing I always do. Any book that, you know, that I sign for, I'm living vision, not circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's easy to go to the circumstances. Well, no doubt. Wasn't meant to be. This is just how right. it's supposed to be and it's time to check. No, you know, get a vision, get a mindset and then, you know, go to work on kicking that thing's ass, whatever it is. And you can overcome right. anything, you know, as long as your faith right. is strong and your mindset is right. But I was very, very lucky. I was at the right place at the right time. And, and, uh, yeah. and, and you did some incredible things. You did some incredible things that when I was there, I remember you actually wrote a note. I guess you got a fan uh, letter from a guy named, I believe his name was Alex or Aaron Alex or something about him losing his father to, um, you know, battling cancer. And you wrote him a note. And the only way we all knew was because he posted it on social media, what have you. So, you know, for the people out there listening, like you, you, you were a huge inspiration for a lot of people. And I wasn't with you at this time, but, you know, the entire league, even people where I was in Cleveland, you know, everyone took notice, you know, it was, it, it wasn't a coincidence that, you know, the team shaved their heads and cheerleaders and trainers and everyone got behind what became the Chuck Strong movement. And now you have gallows to support cancer research. And it was just, you know, things like this, you know, you were put in, you were put in that place for a reason to ins inspire a lot of people. And, you know, I'm a firm believer in, you know, the, the man above doesn't put us in situations we can't handle. And, you were you epitomized that and so uh you're still an inspiration to a lot of us and you know you went on you know you you battle back you're able to you address the team i think the last week of the season or so forth and you know i show up some years later you have nothing but winning seasons.